We asked you to submit your questions and we were just overwhelmed by the response. We'll be answering those right after this. Today's handshake is suffering patiently. A gentleman knows how to suffer with patience. We are on God's time and crosses come to us daily. The gentleman who gets irritable and bitter is not somebody that others want to be around when they're struggling with their um, sufferings in life. And in fact, I read recently something that St. Alphonsus said that I think is very appropriate for this handshake, and that is, Nothing is more pleasing to God than to see a soul suffering with patience, all the crosses sent it by him. So like we said in the introduction, we asked you to submit your questions to us and we thought we might just get one or two. We got overwhelmed with so many great questions from a wide variety of men and we're really excited today to answer some of those questions. So. Yeah, we are. So if you're tuning in for the first time, we are your co-host, Sam Guzman and John Heinen. We're excited to be here. We're blessed to help other um, men and uh, and provide this men's ministry. Uh, definitely click subscribe on YouTube if you're following us there or listen to us on your podcast of uh, choice, podcast player of choice, click subscribe there. Uh, we'd appreciate it. If you could also send it out to any of your friends, if you like what we're talking about, send it out to your friends. That grassroots effort is really what helps us grow. So thanks for being here. As Sam was saying, we got a lot of questions, and we were real excited about these questions. I was actually a little overwhelmed. Uh, I sent it out the email and was like, well, we might get five, six. You know, <laughs> yeah. We got a lot. Um, so actually, we got enough to do a couple episodes. So if you don't hear your question being answered on this episode... Um, you know, stay tuned. We're going to have another episode where we're going to go through some more questions. There were also a lot of similar questions as well, and we'll kind of cover those as we go through this. So uh, the first question is actually for you, Sam, and so I'm going to be the one to ask it, and it was about your episode with Matt Frad. You were on the Pints with Aquinas, and on that episode, you talked about the traditional Latin mass. And um, the question is, is what other resources would you be aware of to help us further understand the symbolism and uh, all of the little intricacies of the Latin mass? He also goes to say, and this is um, one of our listeners, Mark, that uh, you really brought him to tears with what you um, spoke about. So why don't we talk first about what you guys were talking about, and then we can okay. talk about some of those books. Yeah, so just a little context there. Um, I was on Pines with Aquinas with Matt Fried, um probably about two, three months ago now, and we got talking about the liturgy, and a lot of the profound symbolism, uh, especially in the traditional liturgy, where literally every gesture the priest makes, everything he says, the, al the altar, you know, the altar rail, the structure of the church, Everything was um, not only well established and clearly defined in like the rubrics and things like that, but also everything meant something. Mm -hmm. You know, the number of times the priest turned around to face the congregation was there's symbolism yeah. there. The number of times he made the sign of the cross was not random. Yeah. It was a specific number and it was a sacred number and it had deep meaning. 
you know, the fact that the altar had to be touching the ground. Mm -hmm. And even if you were, if it was on a second floor, there had to be a pillar underneath so that the altar is connected to the ground. The altars used to be, um, look like tombs Mm. because in the early church, the martyrs, um, tombs were actually the very first altars that priests would use to celebrate mass in the catacombs. They would celebrate them on the tombs of the martyrs. And that's why in the mass, um, you hear a prayer where it specifically talks about in the presence of the saints whose relics are here and every altar has relics embedded in it to kind of hearken back to those early days of the church when the mass was celebrated on the tombs of the martyrs. So like you look at a traditional altar and nowadays we have a lot of the, like the table altars in the Mm -hmm. newer churches, but in in a traditional Catholic, uh, sanctuary, the altar looks like a tomb and it's not random. So all of those beautiful symbolic things um, are richly embedded in the traditional Latin liturgy. Um, of course, you don't always know all of that's present, yeah. but you feel it. You feel kind of that denseness of symbolism. So there's a couple of resources that I can recommend. Um, there's so many out there that it's, this is just a, a brief list. But one is a great new documentary video series called Mass of the Ages. Yeah. As far as I know, it's freely available on YouTube. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and it, I mean, you can watch the whole series, and it's it's really uh, the in-depth story of the traditional liturgy, a lot of people talking about the richness of it, the symbolism. Yeah. Um, there's some incredible cinematography that goes yeah. along with that. So great I would look up yeah. Mass of the Ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, there's a great book that hardly anyone knows about, but it's I really didn't. profound. <laughs> it's called Divine Liturgy. Yeah insights into its mystery and it's written by a french professor named jean Hany. okay it's j-e-a-n like looks like jean yeah and then h-a-n-i and it's published by angelico press and he really oh, goes through great. kind of all the lit- like all the liturgies of the catholic church um including yeah. some lesser known liturgies but also the divine liturgy of saint john chrysostom but also which the byzantine catholics use but also the lat traditional Latin liturgy, and he just talks about it all, like the orientation of the sanctuary, symbolism of the altar, the symbolism of the gestures and and the words and, and the different phases of the mass, and just all of that is really profound, is really beautiful, and it's a very short book. It packs yeah. a lot of of uh, profound insights into a very short book. So look that one up. Another one is um, nothing superfluous. Um, published by FSSP, okay. and it, it's all about the symbolism of the Latin Mass. Mass yeah. So check that one out as well. Um, but yeah. those, are, those are enough resources to get you started, but just know that uh, the liturgy is not random. Yeah. Um, it was an intricate, organic organism that grew up over the centuries, and there's parts of it that are so ancient, they go all the way back to the very earliest days of the church, like the Roman canon is almost, I mean, we found uh, ancient manuscripts from like second century, third century AD, and the Roman canon is like word for word identical to the traditional Latin mass that we celebrate today. So very profound, a lot of history there. Amen. Well, and I really liked your uh, mention of of just you experience it, right, when you're at the Latin mass. And I had something very similar 
it's now been 11 or 12 years when I got to go to my first Latin mass and I was, I was Maundy Thursday. And I remember just in that little red booklet that I brought up in show prep, yes. you know, then the margins and things like that, just reading like the nine hierarchy of angels, which is why we've got three Kyrie's, three Christ day, three Kyrie's, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm just like, oh my goodness, like there's a purpose for everything. And then what's so amazing about the um, Latin mass altar, and we wouldn't have said this however many years ago, is that uh, Christ in the tabernacle is always front and center. He's yes. never hidden off to some corner or some side, you know. It's always front and center and, and present. And I think, uh, to your point, if you give the Latin Mass a try and you do with, uh, with an open um, heart and a reverent mind and um, just a desire to really enter in, and you do that more than once, do that a few times, you're going to... Um, probably fall madly in love with it. So. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's kind of like being given a tour of a cathedral. Like you can walk into a cathedral and be yeah. like, wow, it's so beautiful. But then you you start hearing the somewhat, a tour guide tell you all the symbolism of the stained glass, the rose windows, and like, oh, wait, there's 12 pillars for the 12 apostles? Yeah. Like I never noticed yeah. that before. And like it's just, your mind's kind of blown. It's kind of like that with the liturgy. Like there's That's always right. levels of understanding that can enhance and like really enrich your experience. Awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. So um, true false is the Catholic Church an elaborate conspiracy to help bald men get pretty wives? The Catholic Church is an elaborate conspiracy to help bald men find pretty wives. You know, I have seen evidence of this. <laughs> I agree. Anecdotally uh, speaking, uh, um, uh that is that is a great question, and and yes, I think it's I think there is a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, the Vatican uh, probably has some Jesuits. All on that right, or well, we'll get more serious now. Um, oh, here is a great question. There. We all go. right, all right. Hi guys, I love your podcast. This uh, is is uh, Luis. It helps a lot. He said, "My question is: Do you read a lot about the saints? If so, how does it help you?" Great question. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, why don't you yeah, start great. here? Yeah, so Luis, yeah, I appreciate it. It was actually, I used to read The Lives of the Saints uh, when I was a kid, but just because we had those little pictorial books, right, where it had a picture of the saint and yeah. then it had like a little two-paragraph thing. And I liked those when I was a kid, but I definitely went through a long period where I didn't read um, The Lives of the Saints. And uh, that was, I would say, high school through college, right? And then I had a, an amazing spiritual director and at, uh, at a Latin mass um, in, uh, in Texas. And uh, he encouraged me to always have a saint book on my nightstand with me, a biography of a saint or something like that, that you're just working through throughout the year. Like it's not a, a, a required, I have to finish this in a week, I have to finish this in a month, but it's something that you're always working through to better understand um, how the saints lived, better see their, their role model and their example, and uh, something that you can learn and practice in your day. So to answer your question directly, uh, yes, I do. I read um, saint stories all the time now. I actually was blessed to have a year with a former job um, where I got to write for Facebook a saint of the day, and I'd have to write a two or three paragraph you know, summary of a saint. And that was a great year where I got to learn a lot about the saints. Yeah. And um, um, But as far as, uh, as your question, how do they help, 
Uh, I think that one of the strongest uh, ways to learn is from, you know, as they say, standing on the shoulders of giants. And, uh, and you know, through that, uh, through that experience. And so you're learning, you know, from the experience of others, from the life of others. And I'm shocked every time I am reading saint stories. And if I really get into it, and I'll spend a couple of weeks reading a saint story, all of a sudden, it's my days are kind of surrounded around something very similar. I'm like, oh, oh, the saint would have responded like this, or oh, this is a perfect example of how where patience or resiliency or whatever the case might be can really come into play. And uh, and so for me, it does help my life because here's the other thing: um, <clears throat> we got. Um, I think it was uh, Thomas More who said, you know, I have to occupy your mind with good thoughts. Um, because if you don't write bad thoughts, will will enter in because unoccupied it cannot be or something along those lines. Yeah. And this is a great example. If you are occupying your time and your thoughts with Netflix, with um, you know just whatever you're listening to on the radio or the next movie or the news feed on Facebook, and that's what you're occupying your mind with. There's a lot holier pursuits that we can we can be um, moving towards, and yeah. I find those saint stories help with that. So. Yeah. Same. I mean, uh, first of all, there's been saints who have become saints just by reading the lives of the saints. Yeah. Say that three times fast. <laughs> but no, it's true. Like uh, yeah. Saint Ignatius of Loyola is just one example, but there's Great. more examples. He had a profound conversion just by mm. reading the lives of the saints, and he said, "I want to be a saint too," yeah. and now he is. Um, and there, and I've read. Um, um, a holy man as well that I read. I can't remember his name, but he said essentially, like, um, if you all you did was read the lives of the saints, that would be enough food to sustain your entire spiritual mm. life and lead to a profound conversion. Ooh, so amen. it can be extremely powerful. Yeah. It can be extremely powerful. And why is that? I think it's because, like you're saying, human beings are iconographic, and there, there's this, this. Fancy term that uh, philosophers or, or sociologists talk about, but mimesis. We mm. imitate. We're, we're we're creatures that are just designed to imitate others. Yeah. Um, we want to imitate a model, mm-hmm. a model that we find attractive that inspires us to say, "I want to be that." And they've even done studies where people sitting across from each other, you know, you fold your arms. Well, then before I know it, I'll be folding my arms too, without even realizing it. We're just that's just kind of how we're designed. But we need a model. We need an mm. icon to imitate. For some people, that's you know Tom Brady or Tiger Woods right. or you know like some sports athlete that they really admire. For other people, it's some guy in the business world who's climbed to the top and yeah. like that's my hero. I'm going to be that Jobs. guy. Steve Jobs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, but for other people, it's the sa- like the saints, and that's for what it should be for us as Christ. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But the saints are Christ in ten thousand different contexts. Yeah. You know, Christ lived in first century Israel, but, you know, St. Alphonsus, like you were saying yeah. at the beginning of the episode, he lived, where did he live? Uh, 1600s, but he was um, Europe. He was in Italy. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, whatever. You yeah. Know? And, and you know, there's more contemporary saints mm-hmm. who lived during World War II and, and uh, maybe even more recently than that. Yeah. So the saints show us what Christ would live like in a yeah. thousand different contexts, and 
that's a powerful, powerful thing. And so, and whatever your personality type is, there's a saint who's just like you. Yeah. And that can be very inspiring because you can say, well, maybe I'm not super smart like Thomas Aquinas. Mm. Uh, well, St. John Vianney barely made it through his seminary studies. That's he couldn't right. learn Latin. It was, academics were super hard for him. Yeah. But he just kept at it. You know, so whatever your context, whatever your skill set, whatever your personality, there's a saint who can inspire you. And you can form relationships with these people. That's the fat, the the, yeah. the amazing part of it. Is they're not just dry characters in a book. Yeah. You could say, "Hey, like I really resonate with Saint David of Wales. Yeah. I'm going to start praying to him." And like before long, maybe he does a miracle for you or something. Exactly. And you form like this relationship with. They're alive. They're not Amen. dead. You know, they're more alive than we are in a Part sense. Part of the so, church triumphant. Yeah. Yeah. So read the lives of the saints. That's I what love it. it. Yeah. Well stated, Sam. That's great. So. All right, another question. Uh, let me pull it up here. Okay. So, oh, this is a question. We've gotten a couple of these, and this is a question about what happened recently in Phoenix about that priest uh, who was uh, using the wrong form and matter for oh, uh, yes. well, the wrong form mm-hmm. uh, in baptism. And, you know, this, for our listeners who maybe don't know, this investigation started um, with not just one priest, but quite a few priests um, over a year ago. I remember reading about it. But the question is, is what happens to all the people who were baptized or received First Holy Communion, or any other sacraments, obviously, after they got baptized, um, if they were a part of this mix-up and their sacrament of baptism was null and void, do they have to start all of that over again? So. Yeah, that is, that is a, a sad but um, t- relevant question. And in fact, this happened to us. Mm. We found out uh, the priest or the parish where we came into the church, we went through RCI there, and our first son was baptized there. He had the wrong form and matter oh, of his baptism, goodness. so we had to have him rebaptized later. And we found that out, you know, by rewatching the video later on. Years later, we watched the video again, and we we're like, "Oh my goodness, he wasn't <sighs> baptized properly." So we had to have him rebaptized. However, what happens to those people? Well, if you become aware of it, like the situation in. Phoenix, I think there is some responsibility to do something about yeah. that. Um, but let's say let's say you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Well, in that case, um, there is a concept theologically, and I don't know all yeah. the ins and outs of how this came to be developed theologically. But I there's this concept called ecclesia supplet in yeah. Latin. You know, it means the church provides. Yeah, and basically the concept is. Moral theologians have pretty much thought of every possible question at some point, it seems That's like. That's right. Yep, agreed. And they, so at some one point, a moral theologian asked, what would happen if someone went to confession and the priest wasn't actually a priest? It was someone yeah. pretending to be a priest. Mm. And basically, they went through all the theological ramifications of this and came out and said, essentially, God would provide for that person. Mm. Like, they would receive absolution, even though it wasn't a priest. Yeah. Now, the the person pretending to be a priest would be in grave sin, sin yeah. for pretend, but the pretending to be a priest. But the, the idea was that the church would supply that grace for that individual mm-hmm. because they were doing it in good faith. They had no idea that the person on the other side of the screen wasn't doing it right yeah. and wasn't actually validly ordained. And so in that case, like the church 
and its dispensation of yeah. distributing the graces of God would kind of provide for that person's confession. So my understanding, and I don't know if I have 100% right answer on this, but yeah. my understanding would be that there would still be graces affected in that situation if the person were participating in good faith. Now, the priest who is not doing it right would be in serious sin, especially if he was aware that he wasn't doing yeah. it right. Um, so that's my that's my understanding. Oh, I appreciate you sharing that. That's uh, that's really. Um, I bet you that was really emotional. I um, I. That's why all kids need to be baptized in the old right now. My uh, all my kids have been uh, except for my uh, last one because he was a COVID baby and uh, it was an Anglican ordinariate. Um, or the, sorry, personal ordinary to change St. Peter, a priest, amazing man, uh, who rushed over to our house when he was, I think, two weeks old because we're like, we've got to get our child baptized and everything's closed. Um, so, wow. Uh, yeah, uh, let's first talk about uh, my thoughts are, uh, let's pray for this, uh, this situation. This is a horrible situation. I mean, and I think the article that I read, um, not in the secular news, but in the... in. Um, and some Catholic news space was like thousands uh, of baptisms, you know, and um, and that that heartache or that confusion that these people are experiencing uh, really need our prayers. Uh, they we should all be offering up a rosary and and praying for um, the individuals involved. And again, it wasn't when this all you know investigation came out um, a while back. It's not just one priest, right? This priest is is coming out and. I believe atoning for for this um, intentional or unintentional, I don't know, um, uh, mistake. Uh, and and so praise God for that. Let us pray for him. But let us pray for all of these people who are who are likewise struggling, right? And I think it's it's important to note what Sam's talking about that we don't all have to go into a state of chaos, right? Um, and, um, or anxiety discerning whether our baptism was licit or right, not. Right. Um, because we move forward with, um, you know, the, the understanding of the church will provide or that it was, uh, licit. We have no reason to believe that it wasn't. And I know, I mean, I would have been baptized in the, early 80s, new mid 80s, you know, and I mean, I don't have a camcorder or a video recorder of right. my baptism. So, you know, there's there's those uh, situations. Yeah. And I think one of the other things, and I, I like this, my mind goes immediately to Thomas Aquinas and his uh, conversation on um, those who are, who die unbaptized, like outside of the church. And, um, and he ends it with, we, we trust in the infinite love and mercy of God. Right. And I, I, now this is not to say, let's all just get out of jail free cards and stuff like that. Like we absolutely need to be following the appropriate form and mm -hmm. matter yeah. for all the sacraments that is so vital and important. Cause if we don't, then, then we're not Catholic, right? Then we're not um, uh, upholding the, the foundations of, of, of our doctrine and or dogma. And so um, I just, um, you know, encourage that, but my mind jumped into a different direction right there. But, uh, but yeah, so let us pray for them um, and let us uh, um, uh, keep our mind on Christ and, uh, and, make sure that our children are baptized appropriately. <laughs> yes, so. yes. All right. Parker asks, pipe smoking. 
He's tried to uh, warm his wife and family up to the idea of pipe smoking. He really loves it. It's really important to him. He really um, wants to not be alone and alienated from his family as he enjoys this great hobby. And he asks for suggestions to make, or not make, but encourage his family to be more tolerant or even more favorable and supportive towards pipe smoking. Yeah. So This is a good question, and it's something that I know I've, I've struggled with. So this, the first suggestion is get incredibly good at blowing smoke rings because then everybody <laughs> just wants to be around. Do Gandalf, right? And, yeah, and, if you and, can blow a ship, <laughs> ship through, uh, exactly. that would be incredible. Problem solved. Uh, so, no, to that point, I, um, I have actually struggled with this as well. Um, my uh, grandfather um, ended up having um, esophagus cancer, and he ended up passing away. He was a, a chain smoker, and, um, and I, I think... Um, uh, there's one question that basically said, you know, pipe smoking, occasional pipe smoking or cigar smoking often gets lumped in with just like cigarette smoking, right? right yes. You know, a pack a day or right. something like that. And and I will just now talking from experience, I've gone through this. Like there is no study that, you know, one pipe a week, you know, is, right. is anywhere in, negative to your health yes. uh, versus somebody who drinks five Coca-Colas a week or something exactly. like that. And I know Chesterton had a lot of great things to say about this. But you're right. If somebody is, um, there's that saying, you know, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And so, you know, with with your um, family, your your parents, um, there's there's not going to be an easy answer to that. Uh, that you know, it, it doesn't matter. All the studies in the world aren't going to. Uh, you know, supplant or overcome an emotional bias towards, you know, what they see as um, as a cancer-causing, you know, right. carcinogen. And uh, we have gotten attacks up the wazoo on the Catholic gentleman for the pipes in our logo and for our, you know, appreciation of um, of a pipe. I would say just a couple things is never um, subject those that don't want to be around your pipe smoke to your pipe smoke, yeah. like never be that guy who right. um, wants to do it um, regardless of who's there. Like he's got one a week or he has to do it on Sunday at this time or something like that. And there are people there who are uncomfortable with it. I mean, be charitable yes. um, to that. So yeah. yeah, be respectful. And, you know, if uh, you may have to just accept that if you can't win that battle, then you might just have to smoke alone and just not... Mm. Um, uh, not have other people around. I mean, that just might be have to be the price you pay to be a pipe smoker. Um, however, I would encourage you to look for a pipe shop yeah. near your house or a cigar store. A lot of them have smoking lounges mm -hmm. where um, you know they've got ashtrays, they got ventilation, they've got a bunch of guys who also like tobacco in one place. Yeah. Um, and who appreciate it beyond just, you know, chain smoking again like this. It's a different culture that goes with pipes and cigars a lot of times. So look for one of those places, hang out there, and you might make a friend. Agreed. You know, most of the, my experience, most uh, people who enjoy tobacco are friendly people. Yeah. They love to talk. They love to socialize. 
And that's where they go to these smoking lounges. Yeah. Um, just about every area I've been to has at least one cigar store with a smoking lounge. Yep. So that might be a solution for you. But be respectful of your wife's wishes or your or your family's wishes. You may like I said, you smoking is so demonized in our culture yeah. that some people just are psychologically never gonna get over it. I agree. Um if I could add a personal story to to what you were just mentioning. I was being hospitalized multiple times um, with uh, with a physical ailment that couldn't couldn't be discerned, and so I got hospitalized uh, three times in a year and a half. And it was uh, I had a bunch of doctors; they couldn't tell me what was going on. And I was at a pipe shop buying tobacco for a friend's birthday, and somebody started talking about this naturopath that they um, started going because they had these ailments and this naturopath is like, you know, a wizard who is curing me and, and things like that. And this is at a pipe shop and I'm like, oh, tell me about this. Like, I've got four doctors that I've prescribed up the wazoo and nothing's helping and, you know, and so they told me and they, we just had a long conversation. It went from like karate black belts to this lady who's a naturopath and, you know, moral of the story or the end of the story is that I went and saw her and she's, she cured me. I mean, she was the, she's the best naturopath I've, you know, ever come across. Uh, she's phenomenal. She's helped me and so many of uh, people in my life uh, with that. And it was because of an awkward conversation that I overheard at a pipe shop. Um, that being said, disclaimer, right? We both have multiple kids, it is a rare opportunity that we get to go to a pipe shop. It yes. is not something like we have priorities and obligations and responsibilities and, and love and yes. charity in our lives uh, that that um, uh, supplant or overcome, you know, our desire to go to pipe shops. So I just I mentioned that disclaimer for people who are listening in and uh, yeah. and might think we just uh, force people to including our kids to like hold our pipe while we're you know, smoking. <laughs> so yes, exactly. Anyways, um, yeah. Um, all right, great. So uh, this is a good one. Yeah, moving on this one. Uh, so Bob asked us that uh, he said he's from an older generation, but he said, if we had to make one move, what practical change would we institute in the Catholic catechesis, particular to children ages 6 to 14? So Bob, thank you for the clarity. That uh, is going to make it easier to answer. So Yes, so... That is a great question. My suggestion is experience, experience, experience. And the reason being, cognitive catechesis is not lacking. Mm. There's all kinds of programs out there. There's all kinds of videos and resources and engagingly packaged things to teach kids the faith. There's that UCAT and all of this. There's life teen groups. And there's all kinds of like creative people who come up with ways to teach kids the mm-hmm. content of the faith. However, a lot of times what's lacking is solid experience yeah. that is this faith is something to be taken seriously. It's something um otherworldly that should demand your attention. Mm-hmm. Um so a lot of times when in like Catholic youth groups and stuff, people say, well okay, well we'll win them over with you know, a rock concert or yeah. like yeah. some really amazing praise and worship music, you know. Problem is you're never going to be able to compete with the world. Right. No matter how amazing your presentation is. Like, I mean, you could have strobe lights, you could have smoke machines, you could have like the most amazing like praise and worship experience ever. 
But they could just go to like MTV or forget MTV, YouTube or Spotify or their favorite, and they're going to get something so much more put together, so much more well-produced. You can't compete on the world's terms with the world. It's just not going to work. You got to just be Catholic. Like have the Blessed Sacrament, have adoration, like have them kneeling and genuflecting, like have confession available, like go to mass, go to shrines and pilgrimages and things like that. Just like the full Catholic experience, you know, because the faith is caught. It's not so much taught. Like it's something that, you know, Chesterton said one time, you know, 90% of education is atmosphere. Yeah. And it's so true. You walk into a church, you know, and people are silent. They're kneeling. There's an altar rail. There's like candles lit. There's incense. There's choir, like an organ. Like it just feels radically different than going to the mall. Yeah. You don't yeah. want the church to feel it's... like the mall. You want the church to feel like the church. That's right. So when they go in there, they feel something's different. Because if a kid feels like the church is just like the world, he's going to say, what's the point? Correct. The world does the world better than the church ever can. <laughs> so why do I need the church? Um, yeah. And I, believe me, I saw this like to an extreme in the Protestant world. Like yeah. They're always trying to compete with the world on the world's terms. Mm. Like We're going to have the same kind of media, the same kind of entertainment, the same kind of worship experiences, yeah. all based on the world's terms. But the mo- needle's always moving. You mm. can never compete. Mm. Um, you know, you've, the church was always like 10 years behind the world's trends and it just came across as cheesy and it didn't bring honor and glory to God, most of all. So just be radically Catholic and like have the Eucharist at the absolute center. Any parish that makes the Eucharist the center of everything thrives. Yeah. Any parish that gives honor and glory to Jesus in the Eucharist, it grows. Yeah. Um, any parish that moves the tabernacle to another room, has mass only once a week, like doesn't have any daily masses available, never has confessions like 15 minutes on a Saturday, um, you know, once every uh, leap year or something like that, <laughs> they're not going to thrive. Amen. And the kids are going to say, what's the point? Why are we even doing this? This is so pointless. That's right. But if they see that there's something significant, something holy, something sacred happening... Even if they don't fully get it intellectually, they're mm. gonna they're gonna say, "What what is this? Why are we why are we doing this? That's Tell right. me more." And you know, maybe at the end of the day, they walk away. But that's at least you know you did everything you could and gave them an experience of the transcendent, an experience of the sacred, an encounter with God that you know is gonna stick with them. I remember hearing. Um, 80-year-old people in a nursing home one time just talking. They could describe the ceremonies, the rituals, the incense, the, the smells, the feeling, the atmosphere that they had as a kid when they would go to Mass. Yeah. You know, And there was like tears in their eyes as they recalled like Holy Week or Easter Week or Christmas. Um, and they were all those things, those feelings, that atmosphere stayed with them. Mm. Um, so atmosphere, experience, experience, like Awesome. That's what I would change. Yeah, no, I love it, and it's um, I can't really um, add much to that. I can I can or you know add different ideas. I think my mind immediately went maybe it's because our first question was on the traditional Latin mass is take them to a great liturgy because it's about the experience, you know. And so I really liked how you stated that because with um, with my children, we 
um, pray the rosary together as a family. And I, I believe beyond the graces that we've experienced from that with my my um, oldest, uh, who's 10, who's just an incredible young woman, um, and she is so generous and so patient and so loving of of her her siblings and of of, of friends and and just everyone in life you know uh we has always done well you know in school and again i don't want to i'm not spiritualizing things but the point is is that by always having these routines as a family where our kids can experience the faith right mm -hmm. from praying eating dinner together praying together, right? Father Patrick Payton, the family prays together, stays together, um, praying together at dinner. We pray in the morning. We pray before we um, go to school. We pray um, when we're eating. We pray the rosary together, and we pray before we go to bed. That lived experience is a part of our lives, right? Yes. Um, <clears throat> the uh, We've had an episode on this about building your domestic church, Right. And and that experience that they have day in and day out is also going to add to the catechesis. Now, what we're doing here, uh, Sam and I, is we're turning it back on the parents. Right. We're turning it back on, um, yes, parishes to give the opportunity to have that good experience. But parents as the primary guiding force of their children and helping them to better understand and and accept and and grow in love of yes. the faith. But to Sam's point, and I, I couldn't agree more, is that if if children are not really getting much at the home and then they're going to parishes and the parish has all the fluorescent lights and the big screens and, you know, um, music that that sounds worse than, you know, your 94.9 Christian, you know, yeah. music station, you know, it, uh, it really doesn't give any incentive to learn more, to, to, to dive deeper and to grow in their faith. And so, um, I, yeah, I completely agree that to guide our children, to help them. Now you also asked like the older kids, right? You know, 10 to 14, if you will, and I would say in these situations, right, if, you, if you're coming at it late to the game and you've got children who are already 10 to 14, you haven't done these things, right? Mass was generally on Sundays. Sometimes you missed it. Um, you don't really have but a cross, you know, in your house. There's not really a Sacred Heart or Immaculate Heart. There's, not, there's no liturgical feast days that you celebrate as a family. And, and your parish has never really enriched that um, or, or helped you in, you know, with that within your family. I would say start now, but I would also say be incredibly patient. But um, I think it was um, um, it was Jordan Peterson who I was hearing recently, where he just talked about um, kids' currency is attention, mm -hmm. right? And if you are patient and you're giving your older kids because it's a transformation that you're having it's a change that you're having and that you and your wife hopefully are having bringing them being patient with them requiring a little bit at a time maybe a decade of the rosary etc just moving in that direction is going to start planting those seeds um, necessary you might not see that change within a year or two years but it's going to move you in that right direction and then a final thing that i would like to add is something to go away from in, in modern catechesis of our kids. And that is 
if a kid asks a question on the Eucharist, for instance, and you talk to them like they're babies versus talking to them about transubstantiation and, and even using some slightly larger words, but explaining the authentic teaching of the church and talking just right here, and I'm not talking about pulling out uh, the Summa and, and reading to them, but talking right here, that's going to go a long way in helping guide them yes. um, along that process. So those where my mind's going yeah yeah don't talk down to teenagers they yeah. hate that they can pick up on it right away just give them just give them what they want to know is the way you talk to another adult um, make it interesting make it accessible but also uh, don't numb it down right um, you know catechesis too last thing I'll say is that it can be very spontaneous mm. uh, my kids the other day were asking about uh, I can't remember what it was. It was, um, I can't remember what the question was, but we ended up talking about the seven deadly sins. Mm. So then I got out, we have these these mirrors in our dining room, you know, 80s houses are weird, but anyway, <laughs> they had these mirrors in our dining room. But they had, I, at first I hated them, but they ended up being a great blackboard. So we got, a, I got a marker out and I just started writing on the, on the oh, mirror. Fine. And, like, oh, and awesome. uh, we had like a catechesis session right there yeah. at the dinner table while we were all eating dinner. And um, at any rate, it, it doesn't have to be f- like this formal, all right, now mm-hmm. children, we are going to do catechesis. No, no, it can be fun. It can be spontaneous. It can be creative. You can... Draw silly pictures to illustrate the point or whatever. Fulton Jean did this for adults, yeah. millions of adults on TV. Yeah. Made it interesting and accessible. So um, be creative, but but I don't think there's any magic bullet. You just have to be faithful and consistent. And um, yeah, I think this Yeah, you can't give what you do not have. So that's the other thing is constantly be working on yourself. You know, if, if your children see the example that you're setting... Um, I know we're talking now more about parents and not just specifically catechesis, but that's the truth, right? Um, right. We are the primary educators of the faith. Yeah, and, don't, outsource um, it. don't outsource it to your parish. Yeah, you know? exactly. And they might be able to supplement and support, but it's yeah. ultimately your responsibility yeah. as parents. Amen. No. An, uh, an individual asks us, what is a Catholic man's obligation to physically defend the church? Now, there's more to it because uh, he puts together a moral conundrum, um, a hypothetical question. He says, so say you're at home, you're watching TV, you see that there's a live news broadcast of an angry mob that's going through a vicinity where you know your parish is. And the mob is just destroying a bunch of, you know, a building or, you know, stores, etc. And there's a chance that they might go and just, you know, desecrate or, you know, um, harm your church. Do men have an obligation to go and protect? Like, would you stop what you're doing, go to your church, and try and protect um, the Holy Eucharist and obviously sacred images and and the church grounds itself? Um, You know, if so, what's the depth of our obligations? And then his final question is, basically, are men allowed to use force if the aggressors are forceful? Mm Yeah. Yeah. That's a very interesting question. (laughs) I I will give an example of what I think um, holy protection of a church looks like. And there's a video that came out several years old now. Um, But it was of a feminist protest, um, radical feminists in Brazil um, were protesting the laws of the country against abortion and things like that. 
and it really turned more into like a riot. It was extremely violent. They were destroying property, you know, bonfires, burning things down, things like that. When they decided to move on the cathedral, and they were going to burn down the cathedral. Mm. Well, these Catholic men heard about this, and they said, N- you're not going to do that. So that uh, this army of guys came out, and they all encircled the cathedral, and they linked arms, and they were blocking these women from burning down the cathedral. Yeah. I mean, this was a wild. Like, you should have to see the video to see how crazy the circumstances were. But the these women were, like, spitting in their faces, screaming at them, striking them. But these guys were just, like, praying quietly and they're just, like, keeping the cathedral from being burned down. Now, they didn't attack the women or anything. Of course not. They just linked arms and they were there uh, present, protecting this sacred space. Mm-hmm. So, to me, that's a perfect example of how to respond to a threat to your church. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's been a lot of church shootings and things in recent history. Our church has, like, a security team. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's we have a plan in place and things of what would happen if that was to go down, like if someone started to attack our parish. That's a totally different situation when there's like a gunman who's like trying to kill people, that's totally different. Yeah. But if it's just a matter of 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 protecting church property, I think that can be done nonviolently. You you can do it peacefully but also still protect. Um but I, but that's I don't know if there's now, I will say, I don't know if there's a moral obligation yeah. to do that. Like, I don't know if everybody it must do that under pain of sin or something like that. Yeah. I don't I don't know if that's I would go that far. But if you feel called to out of love for the church to do that, then by all means, um, find a way to, to peacefully protect that property. Yeah, agreed. And I, and I appreciate the way you say that, because I likewise, again, not a moral theologian. No. St. Alphonsus is by far one of my favorite saints. You've, if anybody who's listened to the podcast hears me bring him up, brought him up today already. Um, and he's the doctor of moral theology, right? But um, yeah, instantly I would say that it is, it is incredibly meritorious and, and with, with you know, um, something to be greatly admired. Would it be a moral obligation to go do that? There's also those degrees, right? Like if if this angry mob has got a bunch of guns and they're walking around with guns and stuff like that, and you have four or five kids at home, right? I mean, wh- where does your priorities lie? But I, uh, and priorities is not the right word, but you know, where where is your responsibilities or, yes. or necessity lie? And <clears throat> And I, I, I agree. I think that um, it could be very meritorious and we could be very moved with, with holy and, and righteous, you know, uh, desire to protect. And, yeah. and in which case, if the Holy Spirit is putting that on your heart, we have to respond to it and, yeah. um, and, and putting it in your conscience. Uh, regarding the use of violence, Sam and I are both supportive. We've had a great episode with uh, Boss um, Rutten um, where we, we talk about a man's ability to defend himself, a man's ability to, to protect others. And so the idea of using violence um, is, again, dependent on the situation because what these men did, as, as um, uh, Stan was mentioning, would be, in my mind, the, the greater path, right? Mm-hmm. The higher path chosen that they weren't throwing rocks back or pushing down women or spitting back at them, you know, but they were living a, a they were 
literally living a very incredible witness of mm-hmm. of the power of of unity, the power of um, control of our own emotions yes. and our own passions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, kindness, if you will. Blessed are the peacemakers. Yes, and I think of Christ in the garden, right when he told them to put put down his sword. Yes, and um, and so I would say that that is definitely the the higher and and preferred path. So mm-hmm. again, we can add more complexities to this situation, but I don't think I'm going to get a clearer answer. You know, yes, yeah, so. right. Yeah, yeah. And I think another um, resource that people might find helpful is, is um, on this issue of self defense. Not necessarily about right. Parish churches, you know, defending that property. Yeah. Oh, that was the original question. But um, if anyone has questions on using violent means to protect human life or something like that, um, St. John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae has a great section in there about our responsibility to protect others and where those moral limits lie when it comes to using violence for self-defense. And spoiler alert, he says that it is licit to use yeah. lethal means mm-hmm. to protect human life. He doesn't say that about property. Right. But he says that about human life. Excellent. No, I appreciate that. So we've got time for one more question. All right, last question, everyone. Yeah. Uh, how can a woman help a man enter into his masculinity? This is a question from, from Anne-Marie. What are some practical tips for encouraging your man to lead if he naturally does not? How should a man teach his son to be a man? How should a father treat his daughter? That's a great That's question. A great I really question. like that uh, That's an episode right there. Yes, uh, it is. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of parts to that. Um, honestly, I like to start by talking about how men have failed women, right? Yes. So we have failed women... Uh, Prior to the 60s, you know, the 50s, the 40s, etc., um, a lot of this uh, feminist movement where women are attempting to be like men comes from a place of pain, a place of abuse, a place of, um, um, yeah, belittlement and, and, you know, and all of those, those things. And so men have to treat women with the utmost of respect. Now, how can women help men on this same line or thought process that I have is requiring it of men, right? And I'll use an example. So I had have a close friend, um, her name's Stacy, and we knew each other from like first communion on. And um, it's been years since I've seen her, but when we were in college, I um, went to just a restaurant with her. It wasn't a date or anything like that. It was just, hey, we were going to separate colleges. We hadn't seen each other in a long time. And something really interesting happened is that we walked up to the door and she stood back for me to open the door for her. And I didn't. And uh, she looks at me and she goes, are you going to open the door? And I said, oh, sorry. And I opened the door and I walked in and then, you know, foolish me decided to open my mouth and say, you know, you're not, you weren't my, you're not my girlfriend. So it just didn't occur to me. 
And she quickly responded. I'll never forget this. She quickly responded. She said, but I'm a woman. Yeah. And I was like, ah. Um, and so that's a great example of one of those situations. And I always open uh, the door for women every time I can, you know, as, as an opportunity. Um, I also think of... Uh, uh, there's this dance movie years ago that I saw with Antonio Banderas and he was in like a rough um, school, right? And there was all of the uh, kids in the hard knock life, right? And people going to detention and, but he was a gentleman yes. and he was standing, sitting in the office to speak to the principal. And every time a woman got up or something like that, he would open the door for him and the kids were making fun of him and thinking he was foolish. But then when he left, the kid opened up the door for the next woman because he was like, oh, maybe maybe this yes, is a good thing yes. to do. And so, again, I would say for women, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of requiring it of men, um, and your peers, you know, even. And, yes. um, and that's where I would start. So. Yeah. Now, if it's a husband, like let's say, mm-hmm. um, let's say he's not leading spiritually, he goes to mass, but it's like super reluctant mm. or like maybe he doesn't go at all. Like that's a painful position for it a is. wife to be in. And I would understand the power of a woman's influence. Mm. But second, also know your limits. Like I don't think husbands are generally converted by nagging, um, pestering, you know, guilting, things like that. Women sometimes can use those tools because they think, well, if I just pester him one more time, he's going to want to do it. Yeah. Well, he might do it, but he's going to resent it and he's going to, you know, he might lead the family in a, a rosary, say, or, or, you know, go to mass one more time or whatever, but he's going to resent it, you mm-hmm. know. Now, I think women do have an incredible power to persuade. Yeah, <laughs> We agreed. all know that as husbands, yes. like yes. women can be very persuasive in their own way. And I think use that influence to the best of your ability. But if he continues to resist, don't force the issue. Like, don't nag and harass to the point where he's going to just be bitter against the faith. Mm. And now what I will say is don't give up either. Don't underestimate the power of prayer. I really uh, am grieved by the fact that so many people view prayer as like this meaningless thing. Well... I'm going to do this, 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 and this. But if all else fails, then I'll pray. Yeah. And prayer is like this last resort, this thing that we don't put much faith in. But no, like, we're talking about a change of heart here. And that's fundamentally an invisible transformation that can't be manipulated by human means. But profound conversions have happened since the beginning of time and they will continue to happen That's right. because God is always at work in the world. So call, you know, pick a patron saint for your husband and pray to that saint. Uh, pray to St. Joseph for him. Pray to, yeah. you know, our Lord and beg him for a conversion of your husband's heart. Um, because there's ultimately only so much you can do as a spouse. Yeah. And I know it's a heavy cross for a woman to carry when she wants her husband to be a spiritual leader in the family, and he's not. But support him, encourage him, praise him, build him up. Um, thank him when he does make some small gesture. Like, just every every little thing that he does, make sure he knows that you value it. And, and I think he'll start to warm to, oh, well, makes my wife happy when it is. 
it might there might be some subtle yeah. change there but but again also know your limits as a human being you know there's only so much you can do but but again in, encourage your husband maybe offer him resources not in an again not in an overwhelming way but just say hey i got this book for you or um here's a here's a podcast like like ours to listen to um so anyway there's there's things that you can do um but ultimately he's got to make that choice it has to come from him and his heart has to be in it or ultimately um it's there there it's not going to be as effective right so i agreed as we talked about a little earlier convinced against his will same opinion still and so St. Monica, St. Rita, two great examples, you know, just popped yes. in my mind, uh, praying for men in their lives. Yes, it was their sons, um, but, but really, you know, amazing saints and women to turn to in the power of prayer. And again, it might not happen overnight. I remember when I was looking for a full-time career job, I prayed an incessant novena to St. Joseph for two and a half years. And, and I'm not patting myself on the back or anything like this. It, it, takes a long time. And yes. and I've heard stories about people who prayed rosaries for the conversion of others for eight years and, yes. and things of that long. So, so I agree with that. Um, you asked two other questions about uh, what a, a husband or father can do for his sons and what a father can do for his daughters. That was the last part of your question. And so I'll just uh, jump in and, and say a couple of things, right? For sons, it's important for them to be boys. It is important for them to understand that roughhousing and getting outside and getting dirty as much as it might irritate you because you have a place to go in the evening and now you're going to have to give them a bath. It doesn't matter. That experience of getting outside, of using uh, you know, um, branches as swords, um, chasing rabbits, trying to catch squirrels in a yes. box, you know, these sort of things are so incredibly important and valuable for our sons to, to connect to their wild at heart, right? They're, yes. you know, uh, Adam created in the dirt. And, yes. um, and then um, I also think requiring them to treat their daughters or their mother with respect um, is incredibly important, right? And if they see your example doing the same thing, yes. then they're going to follow it. And then for uh, last thing I will say on this uh, for men to daughters, I am blessed with uh, my two oldest that are daughters is uh, again, attention and spending time with them, allowing them to be women. One great example or feminine. One great example is I learned before I had children that women have 25% more corpus callosum between the right and left brain, right? So they have more connective tissues connecting their brain. And as such, they will think circularly, right? And so they work through things and they, and, and, that's actually a beautiful thing, right? When your little daughter comes up to you and wants to tell you a story and it just seems to go like this, allow her to do that. Yes. Don't rush that because you are allowing her to embrace and be um, biologically even what she is, what her makeup is for. And so, um, and then I do daddy-daughter dates um, as frequently as I can, and I show them respect, and I open the doors for them, and we dress up and all of those fun things. So those yeah. are the last few things. You know, starts young, but uh, but it can really um, pay great 
dividends. A simple rule is treat your daughters the way you want their future husband to treat them Mm. with the same love and respect and attention that you would love for their future husband um, to, to, to treat them with because Girls will often look for a man similar to their dad. It's just kind of like a universal, yeah. well, not always, yeah. Yeah. Uh, assuming he's a good man, yeah, you exactly. know. But um, girls will, will say, I want to marry a man like my father. And maybe it's even an unconscious level, but they will gravitate yeah. towards men like that. So treat them the way that you want them to be treated by their husband. Great. Anything for the boys? Oh, yeah. And for the boys, absolutely, yes. Mothers, um, put a little bit of restraint on your motherly anxiety <laughs> when they're you. doing there something you dangerous. You know, yeah. when they're they're uh, climbing on top of the playhouse or something. Like, <sighs> give them a little space to do those things. And fathers, um, roughhouse with them. Yeah, boys love to get physical. I have wrestling matches with my boys all the time, and they're getting to the point where they 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 beat me up a bit. But <laughs> but uh, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Boys love to roughhouse. Just roughhouse with your boys. Spend time with them. Throw a ball with them. Um, you know, just invest in them. Then and, and they'll, those memories will stay with them the rest of their life. Awesome. Yeah, I agree. So if this is your first time tuning in, we like to do something that we call the nightcap which is just something in life that we as men admire. It can be a book, it can be um, a tool, it can be something tangible, it can be something visual, it can be something even spiritual. Um, And so I chose a nightcap for this episode, which is a punching bag. And uh, might seem a little humorous, but my wife started doing uh, punching, you know, classes or things like that. There's an all-women's, you know, group that she was with, and she uh, really uh, enjoyed it. There was just something about that, you know. Um, and so she wanted us to get a punching bag. And so I spent a long time looking at punching bags. And I will say, the one... I fell in love with, if that's possible, to fall in love with a punching bag visually, was the all leather one, right? The one that was the brown leather, um, looked yes. exactly like something Ali would have had to, you know, utilized. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, it, it, it just, just called. Uh, so that, that's a recent one. It called to me. I was like, ah, oh, unfortunately they're crazy expensive. So <laughs> that, that excluded it because I, we have to prove that this is going to be something that we utilize without breaking our fingers and with, you know, <laughs> um, uh, using, but I, I did experience that recently that, um, that even a punching bag can really, you know, beckon you to, uh, to some sort of physical activity yeah, in a good way. Yeah, it's great yeah. exercise, and it's a lot of a lot of fun uh, to try to knock it off the chain. That's um, right. <laughs> exactly. This is a they're heavy punching bags. I tell you, I'm not. Uh, we got it. And we put it up, but um, I'm not used to it yet. So yeah. it's going to take some time. So, anyways, thanks so much for tuning in. We're grateful that you are here. And as we end all of our episodes, be a man, be a saint.